morning, and uh, welcome to Journey on a cold, snowy March morning. Uh, we can do better than this, and we will. Uh, give us a few days. We really can. I'm glad you're here today. Um, really am. This has been a great study. Uh, Sometimes we just kind of get into a, a study that you don't, uh, I don't always anticipate how interesting it's going to be to me personally. You just kind of move into a series, but this has really been cool. And I've got a lot of really good comments from you guys, and I hope it's kind of feeding you and encouraging you. Uh, you can't uh, find better material than the life of Jesus Christ, for sure. Uh, but John puts it in an awesome perspective that, that I've really enjoyed, and, and uh, you guys have been encouraging by. And uh, how about the worship team this morning? Wasn't that awesome? Uh, Chris? Man, uh, Chris is doing an awesome job. He's just grown and developed uh, and, uh, into just a really uh, confident talented young guy and uh, the team that w was with him this morning. That was awesome. And uh, so we just appreciate that. Well, let's jump in. Uh, you know, uh, today we're going to be talking, uh, we talk, sang a lot about water. I noticed that. Maybe you did too, oceans and stepping into the water. We're going to talk about water, talk about living water today. To get into that, um, you probably heard, this doesn't sound like it's connected, but I'll pull it together, all right? You've probably heard of the HBO series called The Sex in the City, right? Uh, and I want to tell you up front, I have never seen this show, but I've heard of it. And uh, maybe you would not want to acknowledge if you watch it or not. But it, anyway, it ran from uh, 1998 to 2004. Obviously, you can still find it on reruns, I'm sure. Not recommending it at all, but it has affected our culture down through the years. It's a story of four 30-something uh, single women in New York City. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, I think, was the star She's a sexual anthropologist who wrote a newspaper article entitled Sex in the City. And in that article, she chronicles the affairs of various people, uh, well-known people there in Manhattan. And, uh, and she and her friends all come together, and they, uh, they decide they're going to uh, kind of explore this area of sexuality. And uh, they're, they're kind of resentful because they don't totally understand why men seem to have an advantage over women. So they decide... Uh, that in the uh, pilot episode, they vow to stop worrying about finding the perfect mate, and they're just going to start having sex like men do. And, and kind of the theme of the whole series is that sex is the relationship. The sex is a relationship. And you know, that, that show in, ended about 15 years ago, which seems hard to imagine, but it was pretty tame compared to a lot of the raunchy cable shows of the day. It's gotten a lot worse, but that kind of set the way for many of our culture's views at this point because our culture is obsessed with sex and obsessed with the uh, decreasing the sanctity of sex taking away the place of sex and making it a very common thing and so we want to just make a stand on that because uh, Jesus is going to be talking about that a little bit indirectly in our passage this morning but God created sex to be only within the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman for procreation for protection and for pleasure and anything beyond that is sin, but anything within that should be honored and valued and even viewed as, as, as spiritual. And so there is a spiritual side to this that affects us deeply. And that's why we're kind of getting into it, because our, our scripture is going to dovetail into that concept a little bit. And we're going to be looking at the importance of, uh, of where we find our fulfillment, where we find our satisfaction, and the things we might look to discover it in and come up empty. And that's kind of what happened here. See, the Bible teaches us, that especially in sex, that uh, we are created for relationships, and that only within committed relationships. And when we violate that, it actually does something to damage to our souls. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 
flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. I think it's interesting that studies have shown how that sexual activity and sexual sin harms us, that it actually damages a part of our brain. Whether it be premarital sex, whether it be adultery, whether it's viewing pornography, sexual sin alters our brain function. And when we indulge in it repeatedly, it can lead to what the Bible calls a seared conscience. In other words, you get to the place where you don't realize that it's wrong anymore. It's a denial inside that numbs us to guilt and conviction of our wrongdoing. And they've identified that actual brain phenomenon. And because of that, while we're looking for something that we do not find in, in a wrong relationship, we're left empty, we're left unfulfilled, we're left torn, conflicted, and searching for more. And today, I bring that up because uh, we're going to explore a conversation that Jesus had with a woman who had pursued this kind of lifestyle. This had been seemingly the goal of her life. This had been how she had lived her life out in poor relationships. And when Jesus has a, has a conversation with her, he helps her put uh, her finger on what she'd been missing in life and what she'd been searching for and how she found it in Jesus Christ. So it's a, it's a long scripture. We're going to read John chapter 4 several uh, several verses so let's just jump in together john chapter 4 verse 1 now jesus had to go through samaria and so he came to a town in samaria called sychar near the plot of ground jacob had given to his son joseph jacob's well was there and jesus tired as he was from the journey sat down by the well it was about noon when a samaritan woman came to draw water jesus said to her will you give me a drink his disciples had gone into the town to buy food the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than your, our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go tell your, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is... You have had five husbands, and the man you now live have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, we will explain, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now that's kind of a long story, and, and initially it might seem like, okay, this is just another account in the, one of the Gospels about Jesus having a conversation, but in reality, it's kind of amazing that this conversation ever was had to start with. 
And we're going to kind of unfold that and explain why. Because if you notice in verse 4, it said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now the reality is, is that no Jewish person ever had to go through Samaria, uh, basically because there was nothing there they had to go do. But the reason that he had to go, we'll explain in a moment, but, but the fact that the Jews hated the Samaritans and they hated the country. If you were to look at a map of the two, you would see that Samaria is a country or was a country that cut like a stripe across the middle of Judea and Samaria. So it divided the northern and the southern country from itself. And that in itself was insulting and uh, frustrating to the Jewish people. And if they ever had to go from the north to the south or the south to the north, they didn't have to go through Samaria. They could go around Samaria and usually did. It took longer. It required crossing the Jordan River a couple of times, but it was worth it to avoid interacting with this group of people. Now, you might ask the question, why did they hate them so much? You know, sometimes nations rise against nations, but, but why did they hate these people who lived literally in their midst or right between them? And the reason is that the Samaritans were a mixed blood race of people. They were a group of people that had grown and, and the nation had, had grown because they resulted from the intermarriage of a lot of Jewish people, the ones who were left behind when the Assyrians overtook the Jews and took them into captivity. And what had happened is they, the, the Assyrians had both left some of the Jewish people and they had moved some other pagans in. They did this often to try to uh, keep uh, rebellions down, but they would just mix the people together. And so they had brought all these people together and the Jews who were there had intermarried with the Samaritans and they were a mixed race of people and, uh, and they were looked down upon by the Jews. It, it was a shameful and embarrassing time in the Jewish history. They did not like to think about the fact they'd been defeated, taken into captivity. And also they prided themselves on their bloodlines. Many of them could trace their ancestry all the way back to Adam. And so when you had such value and such superiority, you felt over others, and then people that were actually somewhat related to you and yet were not as good as you, there was just a lot of animosity between the two. And so they were considered to be half-breeds, and they were hated. But not only were they looked down upon because of actually who they were, they also didn't hold the same religious beliefs as the Jewish people as well. And that was an issue. They did worship God, but they went back, and they counted as their ancestors, uh, Abraham and Jacob, Isaac and Jacob, uh, the patriarchs of old. They believed in them. They were actually their ancestors. But they didn't go to the temple to worship like the New, the New Testament uh, believers or uh, Jews did. Instead, they had their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which is where Abraham and Jacob had worshipped themselves. They did not recognize Jerusalem as the place of worship. The temple, obviously because of the animosity, uh, they weren't going to go to another country to worship. They went to their own, so they had their own worship place. They, they worshipped and studied the first four books of the Old Testament, the ones that Moses wrote. They didn't follow the prophets. They didn't pick up uh, a lot of the other teachings. They didn't follow the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin we talked about last week. They kind of had their own thing going on. And so there was a lot of conflict. There were a lot of uh, disagreements, resentments, pride that clashed between these group, uh, two groups of people. And in fact, the Jews held them in the same contempt as they would a Gentile. So that's kind of how they looked, even though they had some Jewish blood, they were not valued at all. And in fact, if a Jew touched a cup that a Samaritan had drank from, they were ceremonially unclean, and they had to go through his process. So when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, 
well, I think what it means is that he was on a mission there. It was a personal thing that he was driven to go, not that there was something only he could do in Samaria or a place he could go. It was because there was a person that he came to see. And as on most of his journeys, Jesus went along with his disciples. And I can imagine they were very uncomfortable knowing how they were designed. I'm sure it was enemy territory. None of us would feel good about going into a setting where we were you know, different and we were, we were kind of isolated and maybe a little bit afraid of what a reception might be. So about noontime, as they were traveling several, several hours, they became hot, tired, hungry, and they reached a small town named Sychar, and uh, there outside the town was a well, a pretty well-known well. In fact, it was one that Jacob had dug. If you go back in the Old Testament, we even read about him doing that over 1,500 years before. They would keep cleaning the well out. When water was found, they would gather, and it would just uh, uh, down through time had become a gathering place. The disciples were sent into town, obviously, uh, to, to, to find some food, find some water, uh, to rest. And Jesus seemed to be there alone by himself, which was a little bit unusual that they had left him, but, but there he was. And while he was there waiting, a woman came to draw water. She came during the middle of the day, and the basic story is that Jesus asked her for a drink. Now again, keeping in mind the relationships here, this broke all the rules, all the rules. First of all, a Jewish man did not speak to a, a woman of any sort. Uh, but also a Samaritan woman that made it even worse. And uh, obviously, um, in, in that context, in that, that area, it would have been very unusual for this conversation to have happened. And especially, not only Samaritan women, but also a woman like her. Because we're going to kind of see, as it rolls out, the, the person that this woman was, her character. And I think her lifestyle put her even on the fringe of the Samaritan culture. So she was a woman, which wasn't as accepted in that day. She was a Samaritan, and also she had a lifestyle that was really questionable. In fact, she seemed to be an outcast among her own people. And she came to the well at noon, and that probably is the biggest hint that, that's given there. Uh, not in the morning. Most of the time the women would all gather in the morning, go to the well, get water uh, in the cool of the day, carry it back, and it would last throughout the day. But this woman had chosen to, to go to the well in the middle of the day at noontime. And the reason she had done that because she was not respectable and she knew that. She knew it. I will never forget one, one occasion I had many years ago up in, a, in Indiana was we had a lady in our community and um, I, I kept seeing her and I, I was trying to figure out her life, what was going on. And finally, you know, I just began to say hello and begin to invite her to church. And she said, uh, Randy, I really appreciate that, but I, I, want, I want you to know that I am not respectable. And I would not be accepted in your church. And I didn't really know what that meant until I began to see her lifestyle. Uh, she had had a very difficult life. She had been raised local. She had moved out west. Uh, she had had a very difficult life. She had had a child who had died of AIDS. Uh, she had come back home, and now she was living in a relationship with her uncle. And everybody seemed to know that in the community. Everybody else in her family had rejected her because of her lifestyle. And she was in a relationship living with her uncle. And she said, Randy, I am not respectable. I would not be accepted in your church. And unfortunately, you know, I, I think that she might not have been. Because that's how sometimes we view people who are outside the norm of lifestyle. People who are broken, people hurting, and people who are rejected. But the woman knew that about herself. And so she did her best to avoid everybody. And Jesus, when he saw her, uh, the circumstances he knew 
what was going on. And to make it even more awkward, I know that she knew that Jesus knew. So when everybody knows about you and you feel like, I'm just not acceptable, it isolates you from, from the rest of the culture. And so that's primarily why it was a, an encounter that probably should have never happened to start with. But even knowing that, Jesus makes an overture, a conversation to her. Jesus does the strangest thing. He doesn't even, he doesn't just nod at her or look at her, which would probably have been a lot in that day. He doesn't even just say hello. He actually asks her for a drink. He asks her for a drink. And keeping in mind the whole, you know, cleanliness, the purity of the, the Jewish people, how they felt, felt it was a very unusual request. But also we know that Jesus didn't really hold to the rules of that day, did he? I mean, he was the guy, after all, who was always looking to be with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and anybody who would sit down and, and, and spend time with him, and he would lead them to a better life. He didn't worry about that. It, it was no big deal to him. But, you know, even in his actions, I think we learn a little bit about human nature. And it's really interesting how he approached this, because how do you show acceptance to someone who feels inferior to you? How do you do that? You might think, well, I need to give them something. So to get into their good graces, right? But, but in reality, many times to show acceptance to someone who feels inferior to start with, you ask them for something. Because what you're doing is you're respecting and saying, you have something that's valuable to me, something that would help me. And if that person then gives you that, then you've already opened a relationship. So I think that's the human dynamic that's happening. It's kind of interesting here. He asked her for a drink, and he begins a conversation. And I believe, and even though it doesn't say, more than likely, in the course of the conversation, she probably literally took the jar on a rope, lowered it down, dipped out water, and over this uh, drink of water, they had this conversation. But what we discover about her is that her life was truly broken, that she had been with at least six men in her life. She had been through a course of men. Her reputation in that area was pretty shot, and probably most people would never have given her a second thought. She probably was invisible to most of the people of that day, but she mattered to Jesus. Even knowing much about her lifestyle, Jesus uh, didn't care. And here's the encouraging thing is maybe you don't place yourself quite on that level. I'm not sure where, how you feel about yourself. But the reality is, is that when you feel that way about yourself, you give up on yourself and you feel like other people have given up on you as well. But the great news is that Jesus hasn't given up on you. He really cares about you regardless of your past, regardless of your decisions. This woman probably had been the victim of a lot of bad other people decisions, but she had made her own share of mistakes. And so Jesus was willing to give her a chance, and he opens up the kingdom not only to her, to her community, but to a lot of us as well. They were no better than this woman in, our, in, in reality. So Jesus gets a drink of water, but that really wasn't what he was after. He wasn't just angling for a drink. In fact, he was looking for something much deeper than that. He said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Because everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, and whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, water living up to eternal life. Because this is what Jesus really wanted to talk about. He didn't want to talk about water. I'm sure he was physically thirsty, but it really, it was far beyond the thirst living water. You know, it's interesting how Jesus presents the gospel. Last week it was what? It was a new birth, to be born again, a new life, a new beginning. This week he presents it in a way that we view that living water is what we long for. 
It's what we thirst for. It's the thing that we need the most. Did you realize that thirst is the strongest physical drive that we have? Thirst is. That people have, have lasted or lived as long as 25 weeks without food, but you would die of thirst in less than a week. Less than a week. I, I read this morning about a guy, I think he was out in Oregon or somewhere, trapped in his car in a snowstorm, survived on Taco Bell salsa for several days. Can you imagine that? Of course, there was snow outside. He could melt you know, and, and drink that. But he survived for a few days. But, but you would not survive for over a few days if you had no water. And why? Because your body consists of 50 to 65% of water. And water is a driv- driving force. We have to have our thirst quenched. A person can become so thirsty that they will literally drink anything. Poison, urine, radiator fluid, called polydipsia. That you have to drink something, you have to have something. But obviously when you drink those things, it will kill you. So here's the thing you learn is that the drive to quench our thirst will, can literally kill us. We will drink what will kill us in order to, to satisfy ourselves. And here's why I say that, because the same thing is true about spiritual thirst. Because we have a longing inside of us. We're looking for something, and we are so desperate to find that and fill that, that we will take whatever seems like it will satisfy at the moment. If it's, the, if it's money, man, we're going we're gonna to drive everything we have. If it's sex, like this woman, if it's power, if it's you know, any number of things, we pursue that. This woman tried to find it in sexual intimacy, one relationship after the other. But unfortunately, we know that even though the world promises fulfillment, it doesn't provide it. And after every experience, after every relationship, every hookup, every empty morning, she was still thirsty. And she was still longing and wanting for what would quench her desire. She had been married, what, five times? And wasn't even trying this time. She was just living with the guy. And Jesus recognizes that. And he even told her, this is what your life is all about. He offers her something, some hope, some living water, some eternal life. He tries to give it to her. But you know what? She doesn't get it. She said, oh, I would love to have some water so I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come to draw water. I imagine she was thinking, it would sure be nice not to have to face the people down every day and not to try to avoid them at the well. It would sure be nice not to have the inconvenience of hauling water. I want some living water that I will never be thirsty again. You know, the sad thing is, is that while Jesus was initiating a spiritual conversation, she didn't even get that. She had been dry for so long that she didn't even tie her thirst to God. She didn't even notice the thing she was looking for most in life was, was a spiritual issue. She didn't even recognize that God could, could provide what she was longing for. So Jesus said to her, which would be common in that day, to have a conversation with the woman would be to talk to her husband. And so Jesus initiates that part. He says, go get your husband. And she said, I don't have one. He said, right, you know, I know what's going on. You're not married at this point. You know, you might even think, well, Jesus is being a little bit cruel here. He's being, what, judgmental a little bit, but not really. Because what Jesus is trying to do is to move her to the next part of this conversation to help her to see the life the way it is is not what you're longing for. It's not fulfilling you. Everything is not right in your life. I mean, look how you're living your life. You know better than this. This is not what you, what you are looking for. It's not going to give you what you hope for. Your life is better than this. The expectation should be beyond this. You're trying to find satisfaction, fulfillment, and you're never going to find it. 
And I think the reason did this is because he wanted to confront the reality of her life. He wanted her to be honest you know, about it because she was probably, you know, put that front up, that excuse, and, you know, everything's fine in my life, like we all do. But the reality is that we all need to be brought face to face with what our life is like and, and where we're missing out. Because the reality is we can't be saved until we realize that we're lost. A drowning person can't be rescued until they acknowledge, I'm going down for the last time because they keep fighting it and they keep resisting that. I can do it. I can do it. And we all feel like we can do it with our abilities and our independence and our resources and we can do it on our own. And what Jesus was saying, no, you are failing and I know how empty you are, but there is hope. There is water if you will receive that. Now, I think her response is, is interesting because it's so much like human nature, right? When Jesus says this, she doesn't seem to reply much to that. What do you say when he's right? So she deflects the issue. Have you ever done that where somebody brings up something that might be critiquing you a little bit and you find a way immediately to avoid it or to change the subject? And that's what Jesus did. In, in verse 20, she said, well, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we worship is in Jerusalem. Well, you know, she is no dummy, right? Because she knows that the most controversial thing about, about faith is worship, right? Disagreements about how you should worship, and in this case, where you should, where you should worship. So, you know, our people, we go up on Mount Garabin, that's where we worship. You people say in Jerusalem. I, I guess what she's implying is that we can all have our own truth, right? You believe one thing, I believe one thing, you know, that, that's okay. We just believe differently. But you know what? It could have been any number of things that she brought up trying to deflect what Jesus was saying. Because some people just want to try to deflect and argue over issues of disagreement uh, as if we can all have our own truth, and, and that isn't true. But Jesus takes this head on. He goes, yeah, you're right. We do disagree, but you believe, you, you follow what you don't know, and we follow what we do know. God's spoken on these issues. What a great way to respond to that, you know, not arguing about where you ought to be here or there. Uh, he says, you can't pick and choose what God says. There is truth. You can't pick and choose what book of the Bible you believe in or your own version of truth. Because he said to her, a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Because here's the reality of it. There is such a thing as truth. And we found truth in the Word of God, and that's where it's revealed, and we have to submit to it. We don't, you know, make our own plan, make our own uh, direction because it seems better to us or because we're more comfortable with it or because the culture believes it there is truth and so we must acknowledge truth and we must follow truth submit to the authority of God that's what Jesus is saying there now I find it interesting that even though this is a long conversation there probably was more of the conversation that we don't necessarily know about but something that was said sank in here and the woman began to realize that Jesus was something special I mean, she was searching. She had a spiritual curiosity. She was trying to find truth, and she began to say, well, maybe this is the one. And so the woman introduced the idea and said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So she knew enough about the Old Testament, even though she wasn't really into the prophets 
She knew about the promised Messiah to know that he would come and settle their disagreements and he would bring truth. He would lead people out of darkness into light. He would show them the way. And so Jesus said, you can stop searching for that Messiah because God has come to you today. And I can give you what you're searching for because I am the living water. And I think that statement was probably the most refreshing thing she'd ever heard. The most amazing thing that she had sought for all of her life, the longing that she thought could be found in a relationship, she discovered would not be found in a relationship with a human being, but with the Son of God. That's amazing. You know, last week we talked about Nicodemus, and we asked what happened to Nicodemus after the account in John 3. And we didn't really come up with a full answer, even though we looked at a couple of occasions where Nicodemus resurfaced and obviously a man of faith. But in this case, we have an immediate answer to what happened to this woman. We know what happened. The Bible says at that point or at some point she ran away, not in fear, not in shame, but in excitement. She left her water jar behind, which was probably pretty unusual as it was valuable. And she ran straight back to the very people that she spent most of her life trying to avoid. The people that she was ashamed of, that she had been intimidated by, the ones who had mocked her and rejected her, she ran to tell them about Jesus. And somehow she convinced these skeptics and these critics to follow her to the well to meet Jesus for themselves. And Jesus ended up spending two days in that village telling them about living water. And many of the Samaritans ended up believing and following him, which is amazing at this point of his ministry because he was primarily going to the Jewish people. But many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus and followed him. Now, what can we take from this today? I hope the lessons have been coming through to you as you've thought about what you're longing for in life, the things that you're trying to find fulfillment in, the things that you're pursuing. And it doesn't have to be sex. It can be. It could be money or food or drugs or alcohol, any number of things that we think is going to make us happy. We feel like it's going to satisfy us. Some relationship or something, some honor. All those things, we look to and we say, well, that will surely, if I can just get that, if I can get a better whatever, you fill in the blank, I'm going to be happy and fulfilled. But when we get there, I hope you've discovered that it's never going to fulfill you. Sometimes it takes some living to get there. In our youth, we, we anticipate, I'll finally get there, but we never get there outside of Christ because he is the thing that we're longing for. For so many people, our thirst will end up killing us spiritually, destroying our hope and our desire and, you know, our, our dreams of following Christ, and we get distracted. But Jesus calls us back and says, what you're really longing for is living water, living water, and we find that only in Jesus, because without him, we're going to be left empty and wanting more and more. And so that's what Jesus offers to us today. He offers us life that we find through his living water. And a chance, a chance to be fulfilled, to find peace, longing, fulfilled, everything we, we long for, only in Jesus Christ. And this morning, that's my challenge to you, as we kind of think this, and I would encourage you to go back and read through this account again. We just really took a real quick look at it, but to kind of see what happened and how this woman finally discovered what she was looking for and how you can find that as well in Christ. Fulfillment, peace, joy, satisfaction. Only Jesus can give us that. 
this morning, if you want to have a conversation about that, I would love any time just to sit down uh, an evening or whatever and just talk a little bit about your life and what you're searching for. I'm not going to pry into your life any more than, than you'll let me or share. But, you know, I don't have to know everything. I can just tell you the one to know, and that's Jesus. I'd love to have that conversation with you. If you want to set that up or you want to just uh, share in a prayer or whatever it may be, I'm going to be over here to the side this morning and just give you a chance to, to think about what you're longing for and how Jesus can fulfill that. And while we're going to be uh, just having a time of communion, time of sharing together, and our custom is to invite anyone who is a believer to come to the table. We ask, if you would, just to come up the side aisles to the table and then um, that section go back and this section go in to the middle to return. And this obviously is a time that we experience a, a brief moment of um, literally quenching a, a part of our thirst because I believe we have a thirst every Lord's Day, every time we come together, a thirst to see Jesus. And this is a chance for us through the taking of the bread and the cup to have a moment of not only remembering but also celebrating with Jesus, a very small token of a way that we can uh, take of Jesus and experience that living life that he longs to give us. So this morning we invite you to do that. Uh, we're going to have a prayer and then we'll just go into that time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, God, we know that we have all have a longing and a thirst for fulfill fulfillment. And God, that, that lasts not only on this earth, but it, it goes far beyond that. That we are made for more than this moment. We are made for more than even a successful life. We're made for more than just achieving all of our personal goals here and then dying and it being done. And God, you have made us with an eternal purpose, an eternal soul that we long not only to experience your peace here, but your hope and your presence beyond this world. Father, give us a greater reason for living. Father, thank you for, for giving Jesus to us to bring that life and that hope and that living water into our, our souls. And Lord, now as we partake of these emblems, we pray that, God, you would fill us, you would nourish us, you would encourage us, and, uh, and Father, equip us to go out into a needy world and to take Jesus with us. Lord, we love you and we worship you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.